Well, good morning, church. Good to see you. Wow, you're awake today. What? This is what happens when we get above 32 degrees around here. Amen? We start to wake up. How exciting that is. I, uh, I've had people ask me, how do um, Michigan winners compare with New York winners? And so now that I've had a few months exposure here, here's how I parcel it out. It's colder here. There's more snow here. The, the, words, uh, the, the roads are worse here, and there's less sunlight here. But other than that, New York winters are terrible. They're just <laughs> horrible, really. Oh, it's nice to be through that deep freeze. Hey, um, just a couple things, little connection time for us. Um, tomorrow night is the Right to Life prayer vigil, and I'm going to be here. I just think it's really important for uh, people to get together that, um, that understand the importance of, of life. God's the creator of life, and certainly he's the sustainer of life, and, and we want to be here to support life. And, and if you can carve out an hour tomorrow evening, I invite you, just come on in. There's going to be a number of other ministries involved. I'm going to be a part of the prayer time up here, and let's just unite together and say, you know what, let's stand behind life. And as long as God gives us breath, he's given us such a beautiful thing. Let's uh, worship him tomorrow night together. And then, um, you know, there's those five ministry goals that we've set out for 2018. And of them, three require volunteers and two require director opportunities. And I'm just pleased to tell you that all those three areas have now had over 90 respondents to say, sign me up, let's do this thing together. And, and in my book, that's just fantastic. And I say, praise the Lord. <laughs> I just want to bring you up to speed uh, quickly on where we're at with it. We had six individuals sign up saying that they were interested in our children's ministry director opportunity. And we had some excellent, excellent people. And I praise God um, for the opportunity that we've had to connect with people, to see their interest, and the individuals that we were able to interview. And we did interviews this week, and we're actually making a recommendation to our elders and um, no one's been contacted at this point. We want their um, thought on the whole subject, but that's going to be, um, this week we'll probably be talking to someone and, and getting them going as soon as we can. And if you've signed up for some of these other areas, whether to help in children's ministry or help with our greeters or help with the, um, the resource center, know that we will be getting to you. This is one thing we had to focus all of our attention on and work through right off the bat. Um, so... You'll be hearing from us soon if you sign up for some of those other things. So grab your copy of the scriptures, if you would, or your iPad or iPod, and we're going to work through our second week here in the book of Esther. I know for some, this may not be a book that your Bible opens up to right off the bat. So just um, as a couple helps, if you have a Bible that is similar to mine, it is page uh, 468. <clears throat> Or the way that I found it pretty easily, if you open your Bible halfway, you're probably going to open up to Proverbs or to Psalms. And if you come to Proverbs or Psalms, take a, take a left turn, and there's Proverbs, and if, as you're going left, Proverbs, Psalms, Job, which is a pretty good-sized book, and then is the book of Esther right before that in chapter 1. And if you are doing a search on your iPad or iPod, Esther is E-S-T-H-E-R, E-S-T-H-E-R. So here we go. 
continuing our study of the Old Testament book of Esther, <clears throat> a book that is different from all other books in the Bible except for the book of Song of Solomon, in that it does not mention the name God. In fact, even beyond that, there's no mention of the temple, there's no mention of the law, there's no mention of the covenant, there's no mention of prayer or other characteristics of the Hebrew faith. There's no mention of miracles even, which make it a very unique book to the scriptures. Because by this point, we've grown accustomed to seeing God do miraculous things, especially through the people of Israel. And in, in some situations, maybe you're familiar with a story where um, Moses stuck out his rod and the Red Sea parted in half. And all the children of Israel walked out on dry land across the Red Sea. Or even possibly you've seen instances in the scripture where um, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were thrown into a fiery furnace and they came out unscathed. In fact, there's a fourth person in the furnace with them. And we've seen some of these phenomenal situations. Daniel not being consumed in the lion's den fire from heaven consuming the, the altar of Elijah right in front of the prophets of Baal. And on and on and on, the scriptures point out God's miraculous intersections of humanity to bring about his will. But Esther's different. Esther is a book about the providential care of God. And truthfully, it's a book that we, you, me, readily identify with because it's typically how the way God works through our everyday circumstances, our challenges and our successes. God is at work through every detail of our lives to bring about exactly what he wants to bring about. Esther is a book that teaches us that God works through all of our lives, not just the special events. And there's a verse we talked about last week. Romans 8, 28, it says, God works, and here's a key word, God works all things together for good. All. Not just the special events, the day-to-day -day events, God works all things. And so I looked that word up all in the Greek because I wanted to find out what deep meaning was behind it. And here's what I found out. You ready? It means all. Yeah, exactly. It means all. Everything. Everything in your life, everything in my life, God is in it ultimately for the good. And that gives us a little bit of comfort when we go through some tough times, amen? Yeah, how true it is. I also understand um, Esther shows us God is never in crisis mode. He never has a crisis. We may, we feel the panic of it. God, God never has a big crisis. In fact, we, we say language like this, man, that was a close one. Whew. How do we ever get through that? God never, whew, he never does that. He never says, wow, that was close. He's not up there biting his fingernails saying, wow, I hope we can pull this thing off. He's always totally in control. Kind of reminded me of um, story of a man who wanted to parachute. And he was up in the plane and the instructor said, um, here's, your, here's what you do. After you jump, count to three, pull the cord. He said, if your chute doesn't open, pull the emergency cord over here. And he says, and when you get down there, there's a van that's waiting to take you back to the airport. So he says, okay. So he flies up there. 
He jumps out of the plane. And he grabs a cord, counts to three. No shoot. He says, oh my. And he grabs the emergency cord and he pulls it. No shoot. He says, oh, great. And I bet the van isn't even down there to take me back to the airport. God has everything under control. He's not a deity that panics. He's not a deity that wrings his hands. And at our greatest moment of panic and concern, he's got everything firmly within his grasp. Even your biggest challenge that you face. You know, as I was in college, I was involved in a couple of um, dramatic presentations. And one I was in a cast of about 14 or 15 people. I was a Reverend Hale in what was called The Crucible, the play about the Salem witch trials. And it's interesting, um, we, we put on about six or seven different um, uh, casts of this, plays of this, and we would have people from the college and the community and parents and all that come in for those. And, and when we saw the play and we read the script, you realize there was so much going into this that people never saw on the surface. In fact, when it was time, when it was showtime, we didn't show up at showtime. We showed up about three hours earlier and we had to get our costumes on and they did makeup. And we checked the props and we made sure that everything was all set. We went over lines again and we rehearsed anything that needed a little bit of work. And then we went ahead and did that. And you realize that whenever we deal with and we see the upfront show of life, when you see the stage of life going on, there's a whole lot more that goes on behind the scenes. And that's where God operates in all of our lives. So much going on that he's bringing about ultimately for our good. So here we are in the book of Esther, and this has a great parallel with our lives. It is an elaborate production with a gorgeous stage, all designed by God to enlighten us. He's always there. Even when we don't see him or hear him, he's always there. And today we're going to see two cast members. So how about you stand with me? I'm going to read the beginning of Esther chapter 1. <clears throat> As we jump into the first two cast members, I've got two life lessons for us to walk away with this morning. And, um, and then we'll see him work in our lives this whole week. So here we go. <clears throat> Esther chapter 1. I'm going to read verses 1 through 8, where we'll see the first cast member here. So just follow along in your copy of the scriptures as I read. This is what happened during the time of Xerxes. These Xerxes, who ruled over 127 provinces, stretching from India to Kush. At that time, King Xerxes reigned from his royal throne in the citadel of Susa. And in the third year of his reign... He gave a banquet for all his nobles and officials, the military leaders of Persia and Media, the princes and the nobles of the provinces were present. And for a full 180 days, he displayed the vast wealth of his kingdom and the splendor and glory of his majesty. When these days were over, the king gave a banquet lasting seven days in the enclosed garden of the king's palace for all the people from the least to the greatest who were in the citadel of Susa. 
The garden had hangings of white and blue linen fastened with cords of white linen and purple material to, sil to silver rings on marble pillars. There were couches of gold and silver on a mosaic pavement of porphyry marble, mother of pearl, and other costly stones. Wine was served in goblets of gold, each one different from the other. And the royal wine was abundant in keeping with the king's liberality. By the king's command, each guest was allowed to drink with no restrictions. For the king instructed all the wine stewards to serve each man what he wished. Father, as we look at the two individuals this morning, there's some lessons that you have for us, God. Not only open our minds, but I pray open our hearts to see the very things we need to walk away with today, to trust you more, to love you more, and have the confidence that you're going to do what's best through all of our lives. Teach us today. Amen. Have a seat. Let's get to work. If you have your study guide on the back of your bulletin, your, your weekly from East Bay Calvary, uh, let's use that and we'll navigate through the text together. Here's the very first person in this cast in the book of Esther. He starts right out in the very first sentence. This is what happened during the time of Xerxes. So here's the first individual that we're going to talk about with some big lessons for us this morning. Xerxes, who is also known in his Persian name as Ahasuerus. And here's an introduction to this king, Ahasuerus or King Xerxes. And here's what we understand from him today. Here's three things I want to give you really quick. I'm not going to linger on them forever. But very, very first thing we understand when we look at the text and we look at King Xerxes, we understand he was extremely powerful. He was powerful. So the Persian king reigned over a region greater than any other king in his day. There was no king that ever reigned over a larger section of land and people than King Xerxes. He was the most powerful leader of his day. Do you notice in verse 1, it says he ruled over 127 provinces stretching from India to Cush, which is all the way over by Egypt. Now, that probably isn't doing a whole lot for you right now, is it? So let me paint the size of this. In fact, I have a map for you. I want you to see the, the portion in yellow is the section where the reign of Xerxes was, and it stretched all the way. You see India over here on this side, and it goes all the way over here to the edge of Libya, which is, that is modern-day Egypt over on this side of the Mediterranean Sea. And I want, I want to give you a feel for how big this is. This 127 provinces is an area that if you got in a plane in California, all the way on the, on the Pacific coast, and you flew to the Atlantic coast on the east side, and let's say you get to New Jersey. Obviously, you don't want to land there. And so you take a U-turn and you go back across the United States of America 
and you stop in Nebraska. That whole stretch is the length of the kingdom of Xerxes. And gang, this is 2,500 years ago. It's not like he could board a plane and fly all the way around. This guy was crazy in power. He was the man. His throne was in a military training facility, that is the citadel of Susa. He had a host of nobles, princes, officials, and leaders under him, as we see in verse 3. This guy even viewed himself as deity. He viewed himself as a god, and we're going to see an account of that in just a moment. Everyone needed to bow to him. He bowed to nobody, and in fact, no one made an appointment to come see him. Nobody. If he wanted to see someone, he called for them, but no one called for him. He was powerful. Here's number two. He was rich, crazy rich. Verses four through eight show the unmatched wealth of this pagan king. And what happened for a half year, it mentions, verse four, for a full 180 days, he displayed the vast wealth of his kingdom and the splendor of the glory of his majesty. So all of his wealth was on display. Everyone came through and saw all of his tremendous resources that were on display. Archaeological finds suggest Xerxes' display would have shown alabaster and marble dishes, a whole wall given over to his personal jewelry and hair ornaments, his necklaces all with gold lace, lying loose in dishes like we would have candy, were gems of turquoise and other precious stones Gold was in abundance wherever one looked. Now, I love this. It gives a little sense of the, of the vastness of what he considered important. If you notice verse 6, he even mentioned, even in his garden had hangings of white and blue linen, fastened with cords of white linen, purple material to silver rings, all on marble pillars. Gang, this is wealth. This is crazy wealth. Now, I love this. Couches of gold and silver. Couches of gold and silver. I don't think they were comfortable. But did you feel rich sitting on them, huh? Amazing. It even mentions some things that we may not be familiar with. Pavement of porphyry, pavement of porphyry. And these these were just beautiful stones that had all kinds of um, crystals of various size in them. That was the pavement that you were on. And even beyond that, there's mother of pearl and other costly stones. This is a party beyond compare. This is something that we've never seen before. This is unbelievable. He's crazy rich. Here's number three. He was volatile. Volatile. History relates some events in his life that shed light on his very unpredictable temperament. And here's some things that he did. 
His military campaign against Greece, he ordered a bridge to be built over the Hellespont, which is a channel of water between the Sea of Marmara and the Aegean Sea that separates Greece and Turkey. So he had this large bridge built. And then what happened right before he was able to use it, a huge storm came by and wiped the bridge out. And that infuriated him so much. Remember, he thought of himself as deity. That infuriated him so much that he ordered his officers to go into the sea and give it 300 lashes as punishment. And you, you can Google this and you're going to see it. There's, there's pictures depicted where these men are out there smacking the sea in punishment to it for doing what it did. That's how much of a deity he felt that he was. And then after they got done rebuking the sea, they threw in two huge legs of iron into it to rebuke it. And then they had all the individuals that built the bridge come and he beheaded them all and threw their heads into the sea. This guy was volatile. He was a nutcase. Here's another story. Pythias had five sons in the Persian army. And, and he had made generous donations to the king's empire, bringing him into great favor with Xerxes. Xerxes loved the man. <clears throat> However, when Pythias humbly asked Xerxes if his youngest son could return home to help his ailing father, Xerxes had Pythias' son cut in two and ordered all of his men in the army to march in between the two halves of his body. Herodotus, the ancient historian, tells us that among the thousands of leaders gathered for the Persian expedition against Greece, Xerxes was the most attractive, he was the most regal, he was the most dignified, he had this stately royal presence about him that everyone looked up to. However, emotionally and morally, this guy was bankrupt. And he was a mixture of passionate and unpredictable extremes in his temperament. He had vast resources, gigantic notions, a notorious temper, and it made him the absolute awe and spectacle of the ancient world. And this man bowed to no one. But here's the thing I want to give you. You look at a guy like this and you think he's out of control. Nobody's going to ever be able to get a hold of him. Who could ever control a man like that? Here's lesson number one I want to give you that I hope will be an encouragement to you this morning. Lesson number one is there in your notes. is something we need to remember together. Here's what it is. No one is too big for God. No one. You agree with that? Isn't that good to know? So here's this man that thinks he's God himself. No one is going to tell him what to do. <clears throat> and this right now, and I know I'm giving away the end of the story, this is the primary person God uses to accomplish his will, saving millions of Jews in Persia. Unbelievable. God has got this guy completely under his thumb, and uses this man of extremes 
to do exactly what he needed to have done to rescue the people of Israel in Persia. And you know, I got thinking about this. It's very natural for us to look at powerful people from a human perspective. Sometimes we quake with fear. Sometimes we look at people and say, oh, there's, there's no way. There's no way that they'll ever come around. They're too tough. I'm not sure who you've ever thought of that way. Maybe you're in a situation today with a very difficult boss. And you're thinking, there's, there's no way this will ever turn around. Maybe it's a very challenging spouse. And you're thinking, this is way too tough. Maybe it's not really a big person. Maybe it's your child, you know? And you're thinking, there's no way. They're out of control. It's like the mom that had her kid in the grocery cart walking around the store and the kid just screamed the whole time. Everyone looked around and saw the kid going by just screaming the whole way through the store. Some of you moms may be sitting here saying, that may have been me, you know. <laughs> Finally, mom pushes her cart up to the, the register and she's getting her stuff on her kids just screaming and screaming and screaming. And, and the mom's saying, it's okay, Susie. It's okay, Susie. Calm down, Susie. And the woman at the register said, wow, I have to hand it to you. You are so patient with Susie. And she says, that's not, I'm Susie. <laughs> that's not Susie. Some of us look at our kids like, how am I ever going to be able to get a handle on this? Maybe you're watching the news, you're like, these politicians are out of control. Okay, I wasn't, I wasn't asking for all that from you. <laughs> you're bigger on that than you were on your kids. Uh, You know, how is God ever going to get a handle on this? This is way out of his league. Well, think again. Because no one's too big for God. I'm sure if we went back to this day with Xerxes, and if you pulled someone aside and you said, you know what? You know what's going to happen? God's going to use Xerxes to save the Jewish people. They would have laughed in your face. No one uses Xerxes. Xerxes uses everyone else. If you've got a space or two open in your notes, let me give you these verses. Here's a couple verses that give me a level of confidence in God and in his power to handle any situation. Proverbs 21.1. Listen to this. Proverbs 21.1. In the Lord's hand... The king's heart is a stream of water that he channels toward all who please him. The king's heart is in the hand of the Lord. And he directs it like a water course wherever he chooses. Here's another one, Proverbs 19, 21. Many are the plans in a person's heart, but it is the Lord's purpose that prevails. And I've got some good news for you here this morning. 
It's the best thing you've heard all day. Your fate is not ultimately in your boss's hand or thankfully in your political leader's hands or your spouse's hands or the voters' hands or the congregation's hands or your neighbor's hands. Ultimately, your fate is in the hands of a sovereign, powerful God. And his everyday working in our lives will accomplish his will and design. The Xerxes of your life and of my life, they have their purpose. God uses them, but don't be fooled into thinking that they're the ones ultimately in control. Not going to happen at all. The future is firmly in God's hands. He's working backstage to see that his will is done in our lives. No one, absolutely no one, is too big for God. Amen. Amen. Take some heart in that. Here's the second person in the whole display of this platform of Esther. And the second person we're going to talk about this morning, here she comes on the scene in verse 9. It's Queen Vashti. Queen Vashti. Now notice this. Here she steps on the scene, and she also gave a banquet. And it was for the women in the royal palace of King Xerxes. So on the seventh day, this is verse 10, if you're following. On the seventh day, when King Xerxes was in high spirits from wine, he commanded the seven eunuchs who served him, Mehuman, Biztha, Harbona, Bigtha, Abagtha, Zethar, and Carcass, to bring him... Uh, to bring before him Queen Vashti, wearing her royal crown in order to display her beauty to the people and nobles, for she was lovely to look at. But when the attendants delivered the king's command, Queen Vashti refused to come. Then the king became furious and burned with anger. And since it was customary for the king to consult experts in matters of the law and justice, he spoke with the wise men who understood the times and were closest to the king, Tarshina, Sethar, Admatha, Tarshish, Marius, Marcina, Mamukin, the seven nobles of Persia and Media who had special access to the king and were highest in the kingdom. According to the law, what must be done to Queen Vashti, he asked. She has not obeyed the command of the king Xerxes that the eunuchs have given to her, then Mamukin replied, in the presence of the kings and nobles, Queen Vashti has done wrong, not only against the king, but also against all the nobles and the peoples of the province of King Xerxes. For the queen's conduct will become known to all the women, and so they will despise their husbands and say, King Xerxes commanded Queen Vashti to be brought before him, but she would not come. This very day, the Persian and Median women of the nobility who have heard about the queen's conduct will respond to all the king's nobles in the same way, there will be no end of the disrespect and discord. Therefore, verse 19, if it pleases the king, let him issue a royal decree. Let it be written in the laws of the Persia and Media, which cannot be repealed, that Vashti is never again to enter the presence of King Xerxes. Bam. The end. Queen Vashti. Let me tell you about her. Here's two things. Number one, she was intelligent and cultured. 
She was intelligent and cultured. She put on this banquet for all the women of the leaders of Persia. Don't think it was any less ornate or beautiful. The banquet went on for an entire week. So she was intelligent and cultured. Number two, she was absolutely beautiful. And we know from history that the Persian kings had several harems containing hundreds of women chosen from the kingdom and Vashti surpassed all of them in beauty. And so she was certainly very appealing to the eyes. Now I'm wading out into this and I need to be delicate. Here's a part of the text where there are some things we don't fully know. The king summoned her to come because he wanted to show off her beauty and he wanted her to wear the royal crown. And here's where there are two different thoughts by commentators. I'm just going to tell you what I came across. One commentator um, said, you know, he believed that the, the intent of Xerxes was that she expose herself to all of the men who were there. Other people say, no, I don't think that was the case. It was that she was just to come and they were all to look at her, but knowing that they were all drunk, I think you know the cat calls and, and the lewd gestures and comments that would be made toward her. So we don't know exactly the intention of this, but we do know that whatever it was, it was not going to be appropriate. It was going to be extremely degrading. She would feel extremely on display and exposed before all these people. And so you know what she ended up doing? She basically did a hashtag me too moment on Xerxes. She said, I am not going to be on display like that in front of all these drunken men to hear what they're going to say. Not going to be a sex object. Not going to feed the king's ego. And she had everything going for her. She had money. She had positions. She had security. She had power. She had looks. She had intelligence, and here's the interesting thing, that after all of that, even though she had all of that, we come to lesson number two. And here's what it is. Check what your anchor is resting on. Check what your anchor is resting on. We, we need to have a talk here this morning. If our security or our sense of identity rests in someone or something that can be taken away from us like that, we're skating on thin ice. We really are. You're never guaranteed not to lose that person we're leaning on or that job that we are counting on or that position that gives us this sense of identity or the status or the lifestyle that we're depending on for others to think we have a certain status. Have you, have you checked? 
Have you checked what your anchor is in lately? A seminary professor once said this, if your security in life is dependent upon someone who can be taken away from you or something you can lose, he says you're living a precarious existence. I just want to share, Vashti found that out. And here's the sad thing. I think she did the right thing. But she still lost it all. She had nothing. I got thinking about it this week. Um, this doesn't mean don't have friends. Have friends. But you realize as great a companion as your friend can be, they really make a bad God. Realize that? If you have a spouse, praise the Lord. And they can be a tremendous partner and lover. But they're never intended to be God. If you have children... I mean, God's blessed you, and, and there can be validation for them, but you realize that they, they really don't make a good God. You can have a job and say, praise the Lord for the paycheck, but you realize your job makes a terrible thing to worship. You can have position, you can get the recognition, you can have all of those things, but you realize they're never, ever, ever intended to be God. They're never intended to be what we put our full identity in. C.S. Lewis gives a tremendous quote. I just want to read a portion of it for you. It's in a chapter titled, The Business of Heaven, and it emphasizes the danger of pinning your faith on people. And here's what he writes. He says, don't forget this. At first, it is natural for a baby to take its mother's milk without knowing its mother. It is equally natural for us to see the man who helps us without seeing Christ behind him. But we must not remain babies. We must go on to recognize the real giver. It is madness not to. Because if we do not, we shall be relying on human beings and that is going to let us down. The best of people will make mistakes. All of them will die. We must be thankful to all the people who have helped us. We must honor them and love them, but never, and he goes on, never, never pin your whole faith on any human being, not if he is the best and wisest in the whole world. And I love this last quote, if it's the only part of it you hear. There are lots of nice things you can do with sand, but do not try building a house on it. Two characters in the life of Esther, and I want to give these to you as we finish. Two characters in the drama of Esther that are put there not for us to emulate, okay? They're there for a purpose, and that purpose may tie in with why you and I are here this morning. So I want to give you these two lessons as we finish. Here's lesson number one. Don't let problems or people eclipse God. Don't let problems or people eclipse God. 
Are you discouraged about a leader? A power figure? Are you down about your health or your job? Are you concerned that those things might be able to keep God's will from happening in your life? Or do you think there's a problem you're facing that's just out of God's league? Then we need to, we need to think again. We need to think it all through again. And look at the verse we had again from last week. Romans 8, 28. We can't let our problems or people eclipse God. How about we read that verse again together, Romans 8, 28. This is so critical to really think about the ramifications of it. Would you read it with me? And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him who have been called in all things. Now notice it doesn't say all things are good or all things feel good. But he uses and works in all things for our good. Don't despair with problems or people. If Vladimir Putin were your next door neighbor, don't despair as though God is too weak. And he may not do a miracle against him. He didn't do a miracle with Xerxes. But in all the everyday circumstances of life, he put together a puzzle. And the end product showed God truly is in control of all, of all of it. Here's number two. And with this we finish. Don't trust in anything else over God. I'm not saying don't trust anything else. Obviously, spouses have to trust. We do want to trust leaders. You need to have friends and partners you can rely in and trust. I'm not saying don't trust anyone. But we can't trust anyone over God. Be careful that our ultimate anchor isn't resting in something over God. Here's two gorgeous verses for us to remember. Proverbs eleven twenty eight. Proverbs eleven twenty eight. Read it with me, would you? Whoever trusts in his riches will fail, but the righteous will thrive like a green. Whoever trusts his riches will fail. They're gone, gang. They can go like that. Here's another verse for us. Psalm twenty, verse seven. Read it with me again. Some trust in chariots and summon horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord. And so I just ask you this morning as we finish up, where's your anchor? What would it take for your world to totally crumble? What's the one thing that if you lost it, everything else falls apart, and whatever that thing is, ultimately that's God to you. What are you trusting in for heaven? Some people say, I'm trusting in the fact that I'm a good person. Well, let me just share, if your spouse makes a bad God, and your employer makes a bad God, and money makes a bad God, and your politicians make a bad God, and your friends make a bad God, I hate to break it to you, you make a bad God too. We can't get ourselves in. We're not God. We're sinners. We need to be forgiven. 
And that's why Jesus Christ came to earth. He's God. And he took upon himself the sin of mankind when he died on the cross. And if we put our trust and anchor in Jesus Christ, in that he died for our sin, then we are forgiven. And we have hope of heaven no matter what goes on down here on earth. What's your anchor in? What are you trusting in for heaven? What are you trusting in for happiness? What are you trusting in for your purpose? I want to leave you with one last verse, Psalm 46.10. And whatever may be going on in your life that can be a concern, a hurt, a challenge, would you think about this? Be still and know that I am God. Relax. Don't fret. No need to bite the nails. Settle down. God's still in control. You may not see the miraculous. That doesn't mean that he is not beautifully working in every detail of your life. Would you close your eyes with me? Maybe you came here today realizing... <clears throat> But there's a situation that has, in your mind, eclipsed God. Friend, you need to recalibrate that. Nothing is too big for him. And maybe you came here today, and this morning it has been exposed to you. that your anchor has been in people or money or your job or your position or your friend or your marriage. And although all of those things are nice and good, they just make terrible gods to worship. There's only one who will not disappoint. There's only one who will not fail. It's God. And you need to be still and know He's going to continue to be who he's always been. And he does all things for your good. He does. Can I pray for you this morning? As I do, just lift your request, your situation, your hurt, your pain up to God. He knows. Trust him. Stand with me as we pray. <clears throat> Father, there are some people this morning that are carrying some real hurts. And some things look out of control. Some things look huge. Maybe they realize their anchor has been misplaced. Maybe 
this morning, God, be a morning of recalibrating our trust and dropping anchor in you. See the aches in people's hearts, and I pray, God, draw them to yourself. And may we, in our trust, find that you truly do work all things for good. You do. Help us to find peace in our storm. Be who you are for all that we experience. And we all pray this in the name of Jesus. written, I thank God for bitter things. They've driven me to grace. They've driven me from paths of ease to storm the secret place. I thank him for the friends who have failed to fill my heart's deep need. They've driven me to the Savior's feet upon his love to feed. I'm grateful too all life's way no one could fully satisfy and so I found in God alone my rich my full supply let's put our anchor in him never let us down everything he does is for our good amen <clears throat> if there's a way we can help or encourage you connect with us here at East Bay we would love to be partners with you, navigating through some things in life. Tomorrow night at 7, we have our prayer vigil right here. We encourage you to be a part of that. And elders who are here, we have a quick stand-up meeting in the conference room back here for us to get together with you. God bless your week. Walk through it with you.